0: This is 105.9 The Region, and you're listening to Discovery, the radio show for podcasters. Your content, unfiltered. This is Discovery. Hello, I'm Cal Steiger, and welcome to Discovery. This week, we feature three podcasts created by Durham College students. First up, we hear Canada Eats with host Noah LaRusso, who highlights his top restaurants in Ontario and beyond. Jamie McGean follows up by hosting his podcast, Two Row Talks, where he attempts to start challenging conversations in hopes to blossom a path forward to truthful reconciliation. Finally, we hear about the top trades made at the NHL trade deadline this season, featuring Spencer Loback and Curtis Mason. Time to whet your appetite with Canada Eats.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Canada Eats podcast. I'm your host, Noel LaRusso, and I'm here today to talk about food, and more specifically, highlight some of the restaurants around Ontario and beyond that deserve your money. So for a long time I've felt like the bills that we pay at restaurants aren't always justified. I'd go to big name restaurants and I'd have a meal and I'd experience some lukewarm food, some industrial style in and out dining experiences, little ambiance and little personality. So my goal has always been to find the tastiest food in my area. Whenever I drop my bags, the first thing that I'm looking up is where to go to eat. It's always important to have good food in your life, and in this podcast, we're going to be reviewing one of my favorite eateries in Ontario, and by the end of it, I hope you'll have a reason to go try this place out. This is the essential podcast for travelers, those hometown secrets that you might have missed, or just anybody that's looking for a good place to eat. Without further ado, let's get into it. The restaurant I'm gonna be talking about today is a little hole in the wall Italian eatery located right in the middle of Bond Street in Oshawa, Ontario. This place goes by the name Chao Amici. The first thing that I wanna cover with this place is my first couple of experiences coming to Ciao Amici. I first came to this restaurant when I was going through a period of time with my family where my dad was going through cancer treatments. They were staying at a hotel nearby So we ate out a lot, we ate a lot of takeout food, so we ended up going to a couple of restaurants in the area. My mom and I go in and we meet this lovely lady named Lisa, and we meet her husband, Aki, who is working in the kitchen. When you walk into this place, the first thing that you're smelling is their delicious home loaves. The thing that really got me about this place is they get their bread every morning for their sandwiches. Oh, man, their bread smells delicious. It just covers that place in the scent of it. That nice, fresh, yeasty smell that smells like a bakery. It's amazing. And the fun thing about Michi's menu is it's geared to be customizable to whatever you're feeling. So they offer five different pasta dishes, toppable with four different sauce options. And then from there, you can add six different meat options to it. Things like veal, chicken, sausage, and meatballs. The toppings don't even stop there. They've also got sautéed mushrooms, provolone, peppers, and sautéed onions. This is the first place I have ever had veal parmesan. Yes, I had my first veal parmesan here. They offer four different sandwiches. They offer veal parm, chicken parm, meatball, and Italian sausage on home loaf bread. So my mom got the penne with red sauce and sausage, and as I mentioned, I got myself the veal parm. Pasta was in good portions. We actually ended up eating most of it, me and my mom. My dad had a small serving of it by himself, but my mom and I ended up eating a lot of that pasta. And the second I unwrapped my sandwich, I fell in love with this thing. I fell in love. If we're talking, let's look at our hands. I've got pretty big hands. I'm a 6'2 guy, so my hands are pretty uh, pretty large. If we're looking at my hands or your hands at home, I'm saying that it was probably two fists wide by let's say one and a half fists length. It was a pretty sizable sandwich and I got this thing fully loaded. I got their sauteed mushrooms, I got their peppers, I got their onions, I got provolone. It was a big sandwich and the veal was in no short supply, mind you. So in the next segment, I do wanna talk about prices. Now, I believe that any food that you eat in any amount for any price isn't justified if the food isn't gonna be good. But I understand not everybody feels that way, so let's break down Chowamichi's menu and take a closer look at the details. And all this is public info. If you want to go look at what they have, you can just Google Chowamichi Oshawa and you'll be able to find it pretty simply. Every dish you order is going to sit around $10 to $13. For penne and fettuccine dishes, you're looking at about 8 dollars And for spaghetti and meatballs, as well as the tortellinis and raviolis, you're going to be looking at probably $10.99. If you want to add a meat to that dish, you're looking around 7. It fluctuates a little bit, a little bit under 7 or a little bit over 7, but you're going to be looking at around 7 bucks if you want to add a meat to that. The sandwiches are 8.75 a piece, and then of course you have toppings for anywhere around a buck 50 to about 50 cents, depending on what you want on it. I mean, usually the vegetables are about 50 cents, but All of these need to go on the sandwich. Just get them on the sandwich. It's completely worth it. I promise you, you're gonna enjoy this sandwich if you just load it up with this stuff. Last time I went in actually, they served this amazing hot sauce with it. This amazing hot sauce. So make sure to ask for that. Make sure to get that sandwich fully loaded. That is my recommendation. So I'm gonna leave you with that information to be decided by you. But for the portions that you get, for the price that you pay, I mean, this place is perfect. You're looking at paying about $20 to $25 per head, no matter where you go today. So if you're going to sit around, let's say, 10 15 to 20 bucks just for a meal, I mean, that's still pretty solid by today's standards. I'm okay with paying that, and the food is amazing. So load up on that food and enjoy yourself. It wasn't until I got to sit down with Aki and Lisa and talk with them and watch more customers come through, that was when I realized that this place was really special. Lisa remembered every customer that came in, what their situation was, who they had in their life. Here's a really good story to exemplify that. One time while I was sitting there waiting on a sandwich, I always order, order the sandwiches, I was waiting, and this man came in with his daughter. And he had ordered his food, ordered his food for his daughter, and she had said, do you need another plate? Um, I know you have a daughter at home and she actually remembered what the other daughter's favorite dish was, which was just really amazing to me. It really goes to show that at this place, the customer always comes first. These guys are some of the most friendly individuals and they really care about the food that they provide for the community that they build at this place. Just make sure you go in, you tell them who you are, you enjoy some food. Tell them Noah sent you. And that kind of summarizes my thoughts with the whole experience that Michi offers. And I don't believe in ranking my experiences. I think it kind of undercuts the artist and what they're doing with food. So I'm not going to give a finite number. I'm going to pose an anecdote as my final thoughts. It's with this experience that Lisa and Aki offer that I remember that food is really uniting art. I mean, we can arguably live without things like music and literature, but it probably wouldn't be a great life, but we do need food to survive. And because of that necessity, I think there is a bit of a lack of a clear understanding behind what we eat and who's making it for us and the importance of eating to us. It's really easy to just take that all for granted and throw whatever you want in your gullet and call it a day. But that's how we end up being content with lukewarm food, industrial style in and out dining experiences with a little bit of ambiance and a little personality. The thing about food is everybody is accessible to good flavor, everybody. And it's with experiences like the one that Lisa and Aki offer at Chalamichi that you can remember this and you can enjoy some amazing food at a great price and remind yourself that we don't eat to live. We live to eat. So go stuff your gourd, enjoy some amazing food, and just remember that you deserve good flavor. Yes, you. Thank you all so much for listening. Once again, I'm Nolo Russo, and this has been Canada Eats. You can follow my work over at nolo.living, that's living without a G, over on Instagram and stay hungry for more Eats Around Canada. I'll talk to you next time. I bet you're feeling hungry now. I'll see you at Chowamichi. First, listen in to
2: Two Row Talks. You're listening to Two Row Talks, a socially progressive podcast that shines light on issues facing Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples. Told through an urban Indigenous lens, I attempt to unpack and break down barriers that divide Indigenous and Canadian communities. We are all treated people. This is Two-Row Talks. Segoes hello, I hope peace is with you. My name is Jamie McGean, and this is Two-Row Talks. Today, we're going to be talking a bit about reconciliation, or the lack thereof. For those who don't know, reconciliation is one of them buzzwords that gets tossed around a lot nowadays by politicians, government officials, and uh, especially in the education system. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission, or TRC, was formed in 2008 to bring the truth forward about what took place at residential schools, and to find ways to reconcile with the wrongs of the past. In 2015, the TRC was dissolved and had brought forward 97 calls to action. You can find them on the TRC or Canadian government websites, but I'll leave that to you. As of today, 8 years later, only 13 of the 97 calls to actions have been implemented, and a federal holiday, but we'll touch on that in a bit. I'd like to start with land acknowledgements. And for those who know, you're probably a little surprised, considering you know we're talking about reconciliation, that I didn't start with one. And that's because I really don't recognize them. Well, at least I don't recognize them as an act of reconciliation. Uh, look, for reference, this is Durham College's land acknowledgement. Durham College is situated on the traditional lands of the first people of the Mississaugas of Scugog Island First Nation. These lands are covered under the Williams Treaty and rest within the traditional territory of the Anishinaabeg. We offer our gratitude to the indigenous peoples who care for and through the treaty process share the lands on which we live, learn, teach, and prosper today. Now, this crafted statement is extremely problematic in several ways. I mean, first, this is a treaty acknowledgement, not a land acknowledgement. It neglects to mention several indigenous nations who once called Durham the GTA and the Great Lakes region's home, such as the Haudenosaunee and the Wendat. And as a treaty acknowledgement, it also fails to mention treaties that have existed in these regions prior to the corporation of Canada's foundation, such as the Two-Row Wampum and the Dish with One Spoon. And again, I'll leave those to you to research. That's real reconciliation, taking action to become educated on the agreements that were set on these lands. We are all treaty people. We have an obligation to understand what that means. Now, there are some other issues with land acknowledgments. You know, I'm an indigenous student at Durham College, and these land acknowledgments are meant to pay homage to my ancestors, my great grandmother, who was forced into the residential school system. And I just don't feel like there's any reconciliation here. You know, Durham College has indigenous study courses. They have the First Peoples Indigenous Center. So, you know, big ups to them. They're doing something. But I feel as an indigenous student that these are just check marks in a reconciliation handbook. Kind of like, you know, we've, we've done our part in, you know, in reconciliation, we've, we've done a land acknowledgement, we've, we've done a good job, we've, we've done what we need. And, and no, I'm not just picking on Durham College. This is all educational institutions, municipalities, businesses. I mean, even the NHL has gotten on board with this so-called reconciliation land acknowledgement movement. But to me, it, it doesn't feel like reconciliation. This does nothing to reconcile with the atrocities of the past. I mean, okay, you're acknowledging that you stole the land. But you're still not recognizing that you committed genocide against indigenous people. But you know, I think the big thing that bothers me with land acknowledgements is that indigenous people don't think of the land as something you can own. We borrow the land. We're stewards to the land. The land belongs to the coming seven generations. So you know, this idea of land ownership is a colonial construct that was never part of indigenous ways of being. What about the animals the birds the deer the fish all the plants and trees that have been destroyed in the name of progress so that canada could grow what about the children who were taken away from everything they've ever known and forced into these so-called schools that didn't let them be who they were born to be or what about the missing and murdered indigenous women and the child welfare system that's still problematic to this day because that's what indigenous people think about when we hear the word reconciliation especially with the recovery of the unmarked graves at former indian residential schools so so again I, i say like where is the reconciliation a land acknowledgement i just i don't understand it but you remember that holiday that i mentioned before yeah we're about to get into that so september 30th 2021 the canadian government implemented the first national day for truth and reconciliation it's pretty great right well the sad thing is september 30th was already a day dedicated to residential school survivors and had been observed in schools across the country as orange shirt day for you know, over a decade. It was started by a residential school survivor named Phyllis Webstad. So now the federal government has overshadowed a residential school survivor's movement and given themselves a day off of work? That's reconciliation. But, you know, hold on, because that's not it. On the first national day for truth and reconciliation, the RCMP, with the green light from the federal government, committed an act of genocide. In 2021, On the first day for Truth and Reconciliation, the Canadian government actively committed genocide on Indigenous people. The RCMP moved in with heavy artillery, combat weapons, and attack dogs to forcefully remove unarmed, peaceful indigenous land defenders from their unceded, unsurrendered lands. Now, there's a declaration from the United Nations called the United Nations Declarations for the Rights of Indigenous People. And in that declaration, it states that the forceful removal of indigenous people from their lands is an act of genocide in accordance with the Geneva Convention. So the Wet'suwet'en people had been standing their ground and saying no to the proposed CGL, or coastal gasoline pipeline, that would run directly through their unceded, unsurrendered territory, destroying ceremonial spaces, medicine gardens, and crossing headwaters of their salmon run. I know this is way out in British Columbia, but I'm sure most of you heard of the CGL issues. I mean, it's what led Six Nations to blockading Highway 6 in Haldeman County and the Mohawks in Tandanega to block the CN Railway near Belleville. And I know a lot of you have listened to the government fed propaganda that consent was given the CGL by the elected band council of the Wet'suwet'en, and that that's true. The elected council did give the okay, but they don't have the authority to do so. Band councils are in most cases not recognized by the community that they serve, and this is shown in extremely, extremely low voter turnouts. But in this case, for the Wet'suwet'en, even the Supreme Court of Canada has recognized and ruled in their favor, the hereditary chiefs and clans, as affirmed by the Delcomuk v BC case of 1997, which states that the hereditary chiefs and clan councils have full jurisdiction over their unseated unsurrendered territories, not the elected band councils. But this didn't stop the feds or the RCMP from forcing their way upon indigenous peoples once again. Now, this leads us down a different road, one of indigenous resistance. And a lot of Canadians don't like that. They don't like when indigenous people take to the land to protect what they have left. You know, I'm talking about blockades, roadblocks, protests, marches. You know, most say it's an inconvenience and not the way to get people to support you or gain their sympathy. I'm talking about the Oka crisis, iperwash Gustafson Lake, the Caledonia conflict. Oh, how colonial of me. I mean, Gunasatagi, Stony Point, the Yinta, and Gunastado. We speak of indigenous resistance, yet we name them from the colonial neighboring towns. The barricade wasn't in Oka. The shootout didn't take place in Oka. The housing development that was reclaimed was not in Caledonia. We need to start using indigenous place names when talking about these conflicts. And remember, we're not trying to gain your support or asking for your sympathy. We're simply standing up for our rights and saying that we will no longer be ignored and you can't just take whatever you want. Full disclosure, I am a land defender, a water protector, an activist, whatever you want to call it. I stand for the land, the water, and the rights of indigenous people. I've been criminalized for standing. I spent six hours in the back of a paddy wagon meant for 15 people stuffed to the brim with 20 on a hot August afternoon before spending nights in jail. And i do it again, so that my son might have a chance at a better future, so that my unborn grandchildren and great-grandchildren will have clean water and sustainable land. And this is a little insight on an urban Ginekehaga man's thoughts on reconciliation. I speak for myself, not all Indigenous people, when I say we need reconciliation. We need to come together and find a path forward. We need to understand that we're never going to agree on everything but we have to respect each other and do our best to get to know our neighbors. That's, that's about all the time I have left, but I encourage each and every one of you to do your part as a treaty person. Do your part as a human being. Lift each other up. We can't have these divides in our society. I hope you have the day you deserve. My name is Damon McGee, and this is Two Row Talks.
0: You're listening to Discovery, featuring podcasts from students at Durham College. Here's a deep dive look at the NHL trade deadline. Hello and welcome to another
3: episode of Tank Parade. I'm Spencer Lobeck, and this week we'll be taking a look at the NHL trade deadline and all of the major contenders' moves. We're joined by my co-host Curtis Mason. So, Curtis, where
4: do you, where do you want to start? Well, I'm probably going to have to go with uh, one of the best acquisitions at the trade deadline this year. A team that made multiple moves. I'm going to go with the New York Rangers. That's a good start. That's a good start. So,
3: this year, at the trade lead line, the Rangers have gained Vladimir Tarasenko and Patrick Kane for their first this year, a second, a fourth round this and next year, and Sammy Blake, which is going back to the Blues. Which, to me, it's,
4: it's kind of... I kind of think that just shoots them all the way to the top as the, one of the top contenders in the East. Getting two probably 31-year-old UFAs this summer, but you're in the win now phase.
3: Yeah, no, you, you definitely have to kind of like bet on now and not like the future. Like they they got Vladimir Tarasenko and Patrick Kane, which have both won cups with with, with their franchises. Have the
4: experience, yeah, yeah. So
3: they're they're veterans. They're they're ready to like, and Kane is ready to reunite with Panarin. They're like one of the best combinations. Like he, we won a rookie of the year when he's like
4: 26 with Patrick Kane. Yeah, so exactly. It's, it's pretty easy with that one. They're just all in. They're ready to go.
3: Mm-hmm. The the only downside I see that it, it, if they don't really show up and like first or second round exit, then they kind of just did that for nothing.
4: Well, I could see that happening if they face this team, uh, the New Jersey Devils.
3: Yeah, no, that, that that that's the other Metro team that did pretty well. They got a uh, Timo Meyer and Curtis Lazar. I, I'd say the positive is uh, we got a team's top scoring winger, which was our team's biggest need. And then um, we got some depth for the fourth line, and they didn't
4: have to give up any of their top prospects, like you said. Yeah, and also another big positive towards the Timo Meyer trade is he's an RFA. You have the rights to uh, give him a negotiation, and you uh, can take him to either arbitration and get that extra year of uh, his scoring abilities. Mm -hmm. You know,
3: it's like... I I really wish that there was a contract already in place. Then I'd say that it's just a win off the bat. But, I mean, if he holds out and we lose him or we can't pay someone else, I mean, it's going to be dicey thereafter. But for, for, for this playoff run,
4: I really hope that they do well. <laughs> All right. And now uh, continuing on with this stacked beast trade uh trade deadline there. We're to move on to the Toronto Maple Leafs. Yeah, the whole new team and they got <laughs> it felt like yeah. they've swapped out and swapped in so many deep uh players and just really just really just Changed the make of their team within uh, the two like the last two weeks there. They really got rid
3: of like almost every one of their picks for the next three years, but I mean like they focused so much on defense, which was such a good idea for Dubas to do, because they got Ryan O'Reilly, which is an amazing two-way center. They got Noel Achari, which he is also good defensively. Jake McCabe, a defenseman from like one of Chicago's best defensemen this year. Eric Gustafson, another good depth defenseman. And Luke Shen, the return of Luke Shen to, to Toronto. Brian Burke is
4: somewhere... (laughs) (laughs) Laughing. <laughs> laughing that he knew that the prodigal son has returned. <laughs> yeah. But on the negative side, they lost probably a top four defenseman in Rasmus Sandin. Yeah, that's who hard. Who had team control for, I think, the next three years there. hmm And uh, they did really well in keeping their picks, but I'm still trying to figure out why they got rid of uh, Rasmus there
3: yeah I think it was kind of just like a a next player up mentality like they really didn't have the space for Rasmus Sandin especially with acquiring Gustafson and McCabe and all of the different defensemen like it's just like he didn't have anywhere
4: to play this year and they're going for this year they don't care about next year well I really hope they make it out of the first round and hope they don't get stuck with uh, the person that started this curse and I'm gonna go with the Boston Bruins here
3: yeah no they 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 also did improve pretty well. They they, uh, they 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 shored up their defense with or Orlov and they got Tyler Bertuzzi and Garnet Hathaway as forwards. They did give two firsts, a second, and a third. But I mean, I think this makes them the most well-rounded team in the NHL,
4: especially improving that defense like weaker end defensive uh core that they got there. Adding Orlov, who's got the playoff experience he's one of the top four four uh defensemen from washington there uh, just getting that experience there just to bulk up their defense and Mm-mm. having a guy that in uh, tyler bertuzzi there just who hits and hits and hits and hits <laughs> and that's what's gonna win Some would say we would win you a lot of games in the playoffs. There's that grit.
3: They're still mad about losing to the Blues in the playoffs. (laughs) But uh, they are expiring contracts, but, I mean, it's Boston, so they'll probably sign for league minimum and then (laughs) for next year. That's just what (laughs) happens with Boston. So, Uh, all right. Well, I'm going to move to the West with the the Golden Knights. The first time the Golden Knights have not acquired a huge name at the deadline. Max Patch like, so on and so on. There's so many big names on that team. Jack Eichel, there's just, there's so many big names. This is the one time I think that they've gone through a trade deadline and not acquired, like, an A player. They got Ivan Barbashev, Teddy Bluger, and Jonathan Quick. Actually, Jonathan Quick might be that name.
4: Yeah, he might have been that name five years ago. <laughs> That's true. Now, since his career is kind of in the tail end, the twilight of his career, he gets to go on one more big run with uh, the Golden Knights there, hopefully, if they make it through anyways. It sucks that they had
3: to give up Zach Dean, though, because like, he was their last first-round pick. Like They have no first-round picks that they've drafted now, like ever, like for all the years. Like He was their last one, and he was developing slowly, but now he's gone. They have no first-round picks, no Cody Glass, none, none.
2: no first-round picks.
4: Other than losing... Uh, Zach Dean there was the last first round pick. They did only have to give up a third and a backup in Michael Hutchinson. who's yeah. I haven't heard him in the league in a <laughs> few years as well. Yeah, so yeah. It's, they did pretty good. Like had a really good haul for
3: what they've given up. Yeah. They they, they got a lot more than they gave in, in, in my opinion.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: All right. And last but not least with, I think we have Edmonton. And them acquiring Nick Bugstag, Matthias Ekholm, and Patrick Pullsula. For Tyson Berry, a first, a third, a fourth, and finally, moving off of Pugliarvi.
4: Yeah, moving off of Pugliarvi, To me, at first, I thought, why, why would they move like, why would they move away from him when they need that extra scoring depth there? But seeing that he wouldn't have returned after the summer, here he he needed that change of scenery and. Who else to take him than the finish loving Carl- Carolina Hurricanes, who yeah. just love to scrum until finish. Yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah but um, I'm actually really like proud of like Ken Holland for doing this, just because like they got rid of Tyson Berry, which he's just a complete liability. Defensively, like he has a good upside offensively. If they moved just... him
4: into a top four, a top six forward, there, and things might have changed out. But yeah. now they got the puck moving defensive yeah. defenseman in Ekholm, so.
3: yeah, Who, who's had monster years on uh, the the Predators. But we all know that as soon as a Predators defenseman leaves the Predators, they're washed up. Yeah. So there's something about that culture that just makes them so good.
4: Yeah, and just. Getting that Nick Bussad from Arizona, there they replace, they they basically just plug him in where Puliarvi was, and they've probably either gained depending on if he's well, he is having a good year anyway. So they've gained more than they've lost there
3: for sure. All right, well, thanks for joining us on this week's
0: episode of Tank Parade, and <laughs> we'll see you next week, guys. Thank you. That's our show this week. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to tune in next week, where we host more podcasts from students at Durham College in the radio broadcasting program. Check out our website, 1059theregion.com, for our full library of talk shows and podcasts. We'll see you next week, same time, same station. Discovery.